Mikowalski. The sun is down, the streetlights are on, and you're listening to Largely the Truth with Brennan Store. To all you restless sleepers and midnight creepers, bleary-eyed truckers and the graveyard shift, this is Brennan Store, and you're listening to Largely the Truth. Whether you're staring at a screen or the lines on the road, all is well. And for the next little while, it's going to stay that way. Because I'm here, you're there. And together, we're going to explore the night. Welcome back to Largely the Truth, the internet's favorite podcast. The internet just doesn't know it yet. It's that time again, and I hope this finds you well. As for me, well, for the last two weeks, the cherry blossom trees on my street have been blooming, and as it is every year, it's been lovely to watch. Uh, Almost as lovely as when they finally fall, and the wind blows drifts of them through the streets like waves of pink snow. Of course, as Dylan once said, behind every beautiful thing there's been some kind of pain, and in this instance, the pain comes in the form of absolutely terrible seasonal allergies. So, if I sound a little funny, yeah, that's why. I've been taking meds, but uh, they can only do so much. There's a lot of birch pollen out right now as well, and that shit is like my kryptonite. So, anyways, moving on. It's fitting, though, that I'm at the mercy of nature for this episode, since my guests are Toby Poser and John Adams, co-directors of the extraordinary horror film Hellbender. Hellbender deals with the consequences of nature, and so does our conversation. Though, don't let that fool you into thinking it's a grim show. It's not at all. John and Toby were so much fun to talk to, and I am certain that you're going to enjoy what they had to say. Before we get there, though, a reminder that if you want to skip the ads, and who doesn't, ads suck, head on over to patreon.com slash largelythetruth, where, for $2 a month, you get access to an ad-free feed. You also get bonus conversations where available, and lately there's actually been a few. I just posted an additional 26-minute conversation with novelists Steve Strad and Andrew Piper, and there'll be some bonus material for my conversation with Toby and John as well. Also, please excuse any background noise you hear. <laughs> There's a demolition happening directly across from my apartment. Every weekday morning for the past few weeks, I've been woken up at the crack of dawn by what sounds like the monster truck scene from Roadhouse. It shouldn't make it into the microphone, but you just never know. So... I beg your indulgence. Ah, what else? Of course, one last thing. Make sure to come find the show on the Repod app. It's available on both the Android and iOS stores, and there's a room set up there just for listeners to the show. Come by, say hi, ask questions, whatever you like. Again, that's the Repod app. Just search for Largely the Truth. I think that's everything. Yes. All right. So, (laughs) now that that's out of the way, it's time to sit back, relax, and reach out to Toby Poser and John Adams of Wonder Wheel Productions. The Adams family, Toby, John, Zelda, and Lulu, are an extraordinary group of filmmakers who, with the release of their 2012 drama Rumble Strips, established themselves as a unique set of voices in the indie world. Since then, they've continued to carve their own path, further exploring the family dynamic in comic dramas Knucklejack and Halfway to Zen, the consequences of low-level crime in The Shoot, and in 2018's The Hatred, The Eternal Cost of Revenge. Their latest effort, Hellbender, in which a mother tries to protect her daughter from their family legacy 
arrived on horror streaming service Shudder in February of this year to near-universal acclaim, and they have very kindly made time to discuss it here. John, Toby, welcome to Largely the Truth. Hey, Brandon. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we're excited to talk to you. Thank you so much. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. As I said to you prior to going on air, I hadn't actually ever approached filmmakers before, but I watched Hellbender, and I was so taken with it that I just thought, well, you know what? What the hell? The most they can say is no. That's awesome. That and, means a lot to us. Yep, and we love to talk to people about films. Fair. I was reading your talk with Walter Chow from Fil- Film Freak Central, and Walter, in his review, he said something that I think perfectly sums up my feelings about the movie, which was, uh, I haven't felt like this very often watching anything. And <laughs> it's so true. I mean, I watch a lot of movies. I watch a lot of horror. And Hellbender just lives and breathes in a way that so many new movies don't. And I just loved it. Well, that's really fun. I don't think there's a higher compliment than, than that. So thanks. Yeah. Oh, and th- absolutely. And we enjoyed talking to Walter. He asked a lot of great questions. He was super smart. Yeah. We had to put on our smart hats. As soon as the questions <laughs> started out with him, it was like, oh my God, we got to smarten up here. Yeah, Walter, Walter's a hard act to follow. I saw you guys were in the New York Times too. And I thought, oh shit. Well, okay. <laughs> the gauntlet is thrown. <laughs> Well, it was pretty, that was pretty wild to find ourselves in that. And it was fun. Luckily, in that situation, we got to invite the guy over, make him some food, butter him up, you know, try not to get too rattled. <laughs> yeah, I saw there, there was mention of cookies, I believe it was, which, I mean, hey, I would, I would write whatever you wanted for cookies. So that's fair. Every time we're going to send some to Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, before we talk about Hellbender, I just want, kind of wanted to ask because as I mentioned, you know, I watched, um, your catalog after you guys agreed to come on the show. And I mean, I'd seen Deeper You Dig and I'd, of course, as I said, seen Hellbender, but I really noticed that from rumble strips to present, you guys just have this keen interest in, or seem to have a keen interest in and sympathy for people. Mm. And, and that just seems to be at the base of your work. Is that something you two have always had or did that come later in life? Yeah, I think we, we love humans with all their cracks and wrinkles and, um, beauty. We were especially interested in people who have those cracks and wrinkles. And, um, yeah, the human condition is endlessly fascinating. And it was fun to kind of swish it through a supernatural lens for this film. And we love finding heroism in broken people. And it, it certainly comes across, you know, there was uh, a moment, I was actually going to mention this at the end of the show, but there was this incredible moment in Halfway to Zen. And there's a credit to you both as writers and, and to you, John, as a performer. There's a moment where, uh, and for our listeners, Halfway to Zen is about a man, uh, Nick, I believe, who is being asked to take care of his estranged wife and daughter. And you were being asked to do this by, by her new partner. And she says to you, she says, look after my girls. And you feel that moment coming before the shot turns to you because obviously it's such a loaded statement because once upon a time they were Nick's girls yeah, and he blew that. And yeah. it is so elegant the way that that line is delivered and the way you portray that conflict. It's, it's not, it's not lingered on, but it's just incredible. It's so human. And I just loved it. Well, that is really special that you're pointing a scene like that out here in this conversation, because Toby and I talk about those moments more than any other moment in any of our movies, which is those, those real human instances where you really feel the impact of people's lives. And they may be ugly lives, they may be broken lives, but there's always this 
spark of beauty in it that's really fun to celebrate. And when people like you see it, then that's all that matters. Because I think that that's what we want to do is celebrate those moments. Absolutely. And something else I noticed alongside sort of those, those bright moments, there's also this real uh, thread of darkness mm-hmm. that runs through the films. Not, it's, it's never overpowering, but again, right back from your drifter character in Rumble Strips to the would-be child molester in Halfway to Zen to, I mean, the way Dougie just takes a hard villain turn in the shoot, <laughs> there is this yeah, very, very sort of pronounced thread of darkness in there that, again, never overpowers the material, but it's, it's very much present. Is that organic to your writing process, or is that something you intentionally thread in to make sure it never becomes too, maybe too mawkish or, or, or too, uh, too soft? I think it's, uh, I think it's organic. I think, I think in, in real life, we're, we're very happy people. But it makes it feel very natural to explore the flip side of that in our film work. I always like to say it serves a purpose in the way that a nightmare does, letting you rehearse and play out your great your greatest fears within the safety of a dream. And I feel the same way about films and the horror genre in particular. Life is not a good life isn't absent of darkness. It's just what you do with it. In sure. fact, you know, the more love you feel, the more pain you feel. And, and that's something that's really fun uh, about life, but it's also fun about movies is exploring that pain, you know, like when things go dark. Another thing I think that's fun is that Toby and I, we've both experienced some super brutal stuff in life and that to, to go through that stuff is powerful and good. Like you want to reach up, put your palms up to the sky and say, thank you on the day you get your ass kicked. And you want to say thank you to the, this guy on the day that's the most beautiful. But you have to say thank you the same way on both days. I believe in, in an interview you said, uh, it hurts, but in a good way, something along those lines. <laughs> it hurts, but we like it. <laughs> but we like it. That's it. <laughs> that's our motto. Oh my God, it hurts, but I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Productive pain, my, me and my friends call it. Productive pain. Yes, there you go. And I mean, fear and pain, that sort of is a great transition into Hellbender. And also exploring the flip side of nature, because the genesis for the idea behind Hellbender was sort of an exploration of, uh, and sort of a turning on its head of something that you learned, Toby, is that correct? That is so right. Yeah. My mom, who played the wonderful Mrs. Minsky in The Deeper You Dig, the woman I, I bilk of her money, letting her think she's speaking to her dead husband, that's my mom. And she died very, uh, the day before uh, The Deeper You Dig premiered. And on her deathbed, she revealed that I was donor conceived. And that was a pretty crazy revelation at age 50. But it became a really beautiful one as I've discovered I have all this family and they're wonderful. And so, yeah, while exploring that and trying to chew on that, that's, that's just a wild thing. We, yeah, Hellbender was born out of that and questions of nature and, and nurture. And it was fun to watch. But at times, yeah, like you said, at times it was painful. <laughs> But it was fun to watch Toby try to figure out all the conversations, all the things, all her memories, and now reinformed with a whole new point to it. Absolutely. And if you don't mind me asking, if this is too personal, you know, feel free to say, but were you able to explore your heritage a little further once you had that knowledge, or is that something you've decided not to pursue? Oh, yeah. No, I'm the oldest of eight half-siblings, and it's, and, uh, it's, it's pretty wild. And there's, and I think... It's a big case for uh, nature in this sense, because we're all a lot alike. 
Um, and I grew up with a brother and I would say we're not alike, although we were nurtured in the same way, we we're quite different. And so we wanted to explore a lot of those questions in Hellbender and also eventually to for Izzy to, to own, you know, to come into her agency and own her power and her, her lineage. It was also fun to see pictures of her blood dad because uh, suddenly things made a hell of a lot more sense. There was always this, who's <laughs> like, why does nobody look like her dad? You know, her dad was a very specific looking guy. He had a very specific personality. None of that was coming through. It was kind of like, what the hell? <laughs> and suddenly all the, the pictures of her blood dad show up and then we meet all of her siblings and everything's like, oh my God, this makes so much more sense now. <laughs> Before we get further into Hellbender, we're going to take a quick break to pay the bills. Of course, the story is about a mother and, and her daughter, and, and the daughter is very special, and she has to be kept away from people in order really to save her from, from the family legacy, and I don't want to spoil the film for anyone, but from her own nature. And I'm kind of fascinated. I don't have kids, but as people who do, is that something that, that you've ever struggled with, the thought that you know, I'm producing this person, but after a certain point, I can only influence their development so much? I think absolutely. I, I don't think it comes from like specifically either of our kids. Like I don't like sure. neither of our kids do we look at and think like, holy shit, there's uh, you know, <laughs> here comes Damien down the that down the alley. But that whole idea and watching even friends, you know, just as we're all growing up, you get wiser and you do see friends or family members, you see their nature sometimes going sideways and you yeah. wonder what happened there? Like, was that in their DNA or did something happen that I didn't see? And so that idea was really fun to explore with Izzy's character because it's in her DNA. So it's fun. We know the answer to that. You know, it's like, right. She is, a change is coming. It's built in her DNA. There is no stopping it, no matter how much the mother tries. And, you know, Brennan, we're, we're supremely influenced by nature. And we live in a very, I mean, you live in a pretty wild island. Um, we live, where we live is very rural and, and nature plays a big part of whether you can even drive to the store on a winter day or not. And so one season consumes the other. There's a lot of roadkill where human life and animal life collide. You know, everything's decaying. And so that played a big influence on what we thought a hellbender was. And in that too, you can't stop that. You know, you can't stop nature. And it was just, it was a fun thing to play with in studying what the hellbenders are and what Izzy was um, reconciling with. And why should she stop? Just like, why should we stop the coyotes who are killing the rabbits so that we hear screaming at night? You know, it's sad for the rabbit, but that's, that's their nature. And the fun thing about a hellbender is trying to stop a hellbender from being a hellbender is like standing in a field holding back a hurricane. It's not going to happen. And right. the reason it's not going to happen is because inside the hellbender, it's calling out. It's for, it forces Izzy. Like there's scenes where the book, the knowledge of what a hellbender is, calls her to its place, opens itself right. up. And that's what's fun is exploring that, that idea that there was just no stopping it. it. It is this child standing in a field trying to hold back a hurricane or actually the mother standing in the field trying to hold back a hurricane. It's just never going to happen. The hurricane's coming. And it's a beautiful thing, the hurricane. Yeah, Zelda's about to go off to college soon. And, and in a way, you have to just, you have to let them go. You're anchored by what you have and, and um, together, even beyond blood. But in the end, she's going to go be her own little hurricane. Absolutely. 
And I wonder, you know, we, we live in a world where we have tried so hard to manage the natural environment to, mm. and I think we've sort of defaulted into this mindset that we control it. Mm. And I think that's where a lot of the power of, of the fear in Hellbender comes from, this idea that we're not, we're not the top of the food chain, or, or pardon me, what, I mean, we're the top of the food chain perhaps, but we're still not in control. And the natural world is, is ultimately the, the great decider. And that, that ragged edge very much shows through in the film and, and I think is one of the many things that makes it uh, very memorable. That's so smart. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, no, not us, but when you... Well, you're smart. We're stealing that. <laughs> <laughs> Next interview, we're using it. Yeah, but it is true. And in this world, the humans are not, in the world of Hellbender, the humans are not the top of the food chain. It is the Hellbender. We thought, that'd be fun. What do you do when you put a human in something, you know... A predator, an apex predator above a human. Yeah, it's great to talk about judgment. That's what's fun. We love talking about judgment. Who gets to judge and why? And a great hellbender rips a human to pieces, scares the hell of it, scares the hell out of that human and gets a ton of power from it. And that makes it a great hellbender. So from a human point of view, it's an evil, twisted thing. But from a hellbender's point of view, if they do that, it's perfect and beautiful. And that's really fun to talk about, you know, sharks. Can you judge a shark? Can you judge a shark for killing a human and eating that? But, but then can you judge a human for killing a shark and eating it? It's kind of like why, you know, it's fun to play with that judgment. Who gets to sit in the seat? And one last thing too, Brennan, we, we did want to play on something that humans historically have instilled a lot of, um, you know, judgment and fear towards powerful, particularly in this case, powerful women. So that's why in the prologue of the film, you've got these women who are actually hanging another woman. We wanted to explore the idea that, well, your fear is of their power. So wouldn't you then, wouldn't the best revenge be be to actually get high off of and become powerful from the very fear that that they instill upon, you know, powerful people? So, uh, yeah, that's what we played with. We thought that's where where we came up with that. It's not just the blood, it's the fear running in the blood. And generally, when something's being hunted or preyed upon, they've got a lot of fear. As, as someone who has heard a cougar in the woods as he's walking home, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I understand to a, to a certain degree, at least, that fear. Um, so, and speaking of fear, I, I think it's, it's a great segue into when you shot the film, because you, the prologue that you describe, you shot that just before shutdown, correct? Correct. And so the rest of the film was shot during, really during the height of the pandemic. Yeah. We bought an RV, not an RV, but we bought a trailer and tugged it behind our pickup truck because Zelda didn't have to go to school. So we figured, well, if Zelda's not going to go to school, we can just drift around the United States and make this movie. So we just changed the kind of production value of the movie and we used nature as our production value instead of we were going to shoot it in our town here with people and actors. You know, it's going to be a little bit of a bigger production. But once COVID said that's not going to happen, we just, we made, Nature, our big actress, well, we didn't make her. We asked Nature to be our big actress and we asked her to be our big production and she delivered. Absolutely. And and I'm really curious, I'd kind of like to focus in on that road trip for a bit because, I mean, everything was going bananas. You know, as someone who himself did not handle the initial wave of the pandemic very well psychologically, I (laughs) admire the fact that you just thought, well, fuck it, we're going to go out into the hurricane and make something of this. (laughs) But what was it like to try and create something while the social order is essentially falling apart around you? It was, it was kind of wonderful. I mean, the, the COVID isn't wonderful, but um, being, uh, you know, self-contained in the little RV, 
and seeing the beauty of nature in pretty isolated spots. And even in a state park, they were mostly empty. It was kind of a luxury that I don't think we would have had otherwise. Um, it was wonderful. And in, like John said, nature really became our storyboard artist. We'd kind of look out our window and say, oh, yeah, there you go. That's it. Let's park here. This is the perfect setting, especially for the book, you know, the book visions. Our travel around the country, we could shoot in the desert. We could shoot in the wild. We shot a lot in Oregon and, and uh, Washington State along the coast. We could shoot in, in you know, the Maine's rocky coasts. Um, the Rocky Mountains. Yes. The swamps in Louisiana. It just was gold. Yeah. Oh, and wow. it was amazing because, you know, we were lucky. We we only, we were serious about COVID because Toby's got respiratory issues. So we didn't want to play games with that. We only right. saw people when we walked in double masked into a grocery store. We, we walked in, bought our shit and walked out. And then again, that night we're in the middle of nowhere again. So that's how we right. dealt with COVID was we were super isolated, but it was interesting to watch different parts of the United States deal with COVID differently. Like the way, like, for example, Oregon dealt with it compared to the way Iowa was dealing with it was super interesting to watch from a sociological point of view. But that didn't have anything to do with the movie because we only saw it when we walked into the grocery store or when we were driving through towns, how people were dealing with it and what they were saying. Right. I, I was just thinking that, you know, it, it, everything at that moment seemed, again, at least to, to me, who was you know, hiding out in his apartment, uh, seemed very um, hopeless. Mm. And it, it just seems to me that such an act of creation during that hopeless moment is really kind of an act of rebellion. You're basically saying that, you know, we're preparing for the future regardless. And it almost kind of reminded me of there's that, that quote from Werner Herzog. Someone asked him what he would do if it was the last day of the world. And he said, well, I'd start prepping my next movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. Like Toby said, COVID was not cool and it's still not cool. Yeah. But for sure. us, because we're just three people that make movies, it really worked out for us because everyone evaporated. Right. There was no reason to have a permit to shoot anywhere. There was nobody in the way. There was nobody, no cars, no noise, no nothing. Right. Everywhere. It was just John, Toby, and Zelda with a camera and nobody else. And Brennan, we did get to work with Lulu, we meant, you know, who plays Amber, because she was living in Oregon. So we got to go out and we actually, everything we shot with her was socially distanced. Yep. Shot. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, I was just going to say, I didn't realize that until I was reading about the film uh, again prior to you coming on the show, and it never would have occurred to me. It, it in no way appears that way, but of course, looking looking at it with that knowledge, you, you see it, but it, it's just never, it, it's brilliantly, ex brilliantly executed is what I'm saying. It, it's oh, never, never yeah, obvious. It was fun. Thanks. And it kind of worked. It worked with the theme of the, the, like, the closest we ever got was when they were by the pool. And it's funny because Zelda, there was a scene where Zelda moves the chair away from Lulu. And it's like, that wasn't in the script or anything. The camera was set up for them to be that close, but Zelda was totally not comfortable. It was like Zelda, we were all supposed to say six feet. Zelda like staying about 15 feet. So she moved right. that chair far away and they said a couple lines that were off the cuff that, and, and we kept it all because it was all just so natural and funny. So you mentioned, obviously, it's just the three of you, you're kind of picking up and going. And I know I've read in other interviews that Zelda has said, you know, basically, if you, you see something you want to shoot, 10 minutes, you're ready to roll. Do you do much in the way of storyboarding? No, the only time we storyboard is if we have, maybe we have other people on set and there's something physical and we want to make sure we get it right. But it's pretty rare that we, that, that we storyboard. 
Yeah, we really work around wherever we're going to shoot. And a lot of the time we don't know where we're going to shoot. So it's impossible to storyboard. We know what we want to say in each scene, you know, not, not line for line, but we know the point of each scene, but right. it's, we never know whether that scene needs to be shot on top of a mountain or in a river. It really doesn't matter. You know, it, it kind of depends on when you pass a beautiful river and you're like, oh my God, this would be a great place to shoot. Right. Continuing on with the sort of the production, something else you've, you've discussed in other interviews and, and I found just, again, uh, just fascinating was the sound design in Hellbender. It reminded right. me a lot of, um, what Brian Reitzel did on Hannibal. Oh, cool. There's a lot of sounds, which are almost things that sound, sound familiar, but not quite. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about, uh, about your process of finding sound. That makes sense because everything, most of the sound in there is sounds that we all know that have been slightly messed with, like the pitch changed, drowned out in reverb, I don't know, delayed and spun backwards. I definitely love sound. Like, for example, this is a great example. There's a, we were riding bikes a lot when we were on that year and they got rusty because we were in the Pacific Northwest and it was raining all the time. And so they squeaked whenever we put on the brakes. And we were up in an old military base going through like an old cement tunnel and Zelda put on her brakes and they just screeched this wonderfully chaotic, crazy reverb sound. And I was like, oh my God, that could be the sound of a hellbender. And so I went back, I got the microphone, set them up in the tunnel and had Zelda go up and down the tunnel a couple of times. And in fact, that sound is peppered all over the movie. And it's just a, you know, it's just a squeaky bike brakes in an old cement tunnel. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, no, again, it's very, very effective stuff. Thank you. Now that the film is out and obviously reception uh, it seems to be very, very good. Is yeah. it likely to be a physical release of Hellbender? Yeah, I, I believe RRLJE is putting out the Blu-ray. And so I don't know what the date is for that. And I'm excited about that. And there's some extra stuff we've got on there. Um, I think it's something like in June they're going to come out and it's got, they asked us for a whole bunch of extras. So it should be pretty fun. We got our effects guy, did a little clip for them. We sent them a, a lot of outtakes and bloopers. So within that, it should be a lot of fun. No doubt. No doubt. Again, I'm looking forward to it. I'll, I'll certainly be picking up a copy. Just one more ad break and we'll be right back. You know, if you're a patron, you don't have to deal with any of this. Patreon.com slash largely the truth. I'm just saying. The theme of the road trip across America, you know, it really connects all the way back to your first film, to Rumble Strips, and really the, the, nat the nature of the relationship between a mother and her daughters. I mean, that, that all connects up. And do you see this as sort of a culmination or the, the end of a chapter? Is there anything sort of symbolic about that to you? Or is it just, oh shit, what a coincidence? Yeah, we definitely felt while we were shooting Hellbender on the road that, and it was 10 years, it was 10 years exactly while we were shooting. So we thought it, would, it felt like a real homecoming being back in another RV, traveling around the country. Still, I would say learning the ropes of, of film. You know, every film we make, we, we realize what we've learned from the last. So it's a constant educational evolution. And uh, yeah, it, it felt like a homecoming to me. It's funny. That was, we thought that was our last one before Zelda took off. But as soon as we were done, Zelda was like, hey, wait, I got another idea. Let's just shoot one more movie. And so we're 70% done with our, with our, now our last movie. Hellbender was supposed to be our last movie before <laughs> Zelda went to college, but now we got another one. That's, it was, you know, it was really great because Zelda was sitting in the back of the car one day. We were driving somewhere. She's like, 
hey, you guys, could we, you want to do just one more movie before I go to college? And we were like, hell yeah, we did. Fantastic. Uh, may I ask uh, uh, what the what the new one is about? Is that another horror film or? It's called Where the Devil Rolls, and it's about a murderous family on the carnival circuit in Depression-era America. It's a kind of a oh. cross between Bonnie and Clyde, Frankenstein, and the Grapes of Wrath. I am all about that. That sounds amazing. <laughs> it's fun. Well, we hope you like it. Yeah, we hope you like it. It's been so fun to do. We keep saying it's the movie that just wants to be made. It's like we wake up and we just chase after it. And it's kind of like, and we're not chasing. It's just waiting at the doorstep. So it's been a pleasure to make. It's just, so we hope the audience enjoys it as much as we have enjoyed shooting it. Well, I, I can't imagine why they wouldn't. I mean, based on everything I've seen so far, I'm, I'm, I'm already excited for it. I'm curious, a lot of independent filmmakers, you know, as they, as they advance, one of the things that they sort of aspire towards is working with a studio, larger budgets, bigger canvas. Is that something that you guys aspire to? We're trying to figure all of that out. I feel like um, we're open-minded, but I also have a feeling that we're always going to have our Wonder Wheel Adams family thing going on where we do it the way we've been doing it since Rumble Stretch the past 12 years, which is very intimate, organic, and small. Also, we set out on this journey because we didn't want to ask anybody permission or be offered a role or be told what to do. And we also wanted to have fun. Like a lot of the time when it was like, hey, can I do a movie like that? Nah, you know, you need, you need 30 people on set, blah, blah, blah. There's all these reasons why you can't do this. And so it was kind of like, well, when we did Rumble Strips, it was kind of like, Let's see whether that's true. Let's see whether we really can't do this. And the answer was that we can do this. And it was a hell of a lot of fun. So we want to continue to have fun. Widening the scope of what we do sounds fun if it's fun, but we're not going to sure. do it if it's not fun. So it's like we have talked to people and some of them sound fun and some of them don't. And so hopefully we'll collaborate with other artists that are fun. Life is too beautiful. It's too much. It's too cool. It's, it's art. It's like painting a picture. If you don't like painting a picture, don't paint the picture. Couldn't agree more. So I have one last question. It's a very silly question, but I, I am, I am curious in the hatred, the hangman's mask. Is that mm. the knuckle Jack burglar mask? Yes, thank you. You got great eyes. Thank you so much. He's like, and we have it in our next movie where the devil rose. We love just, but what are they called? Easter eggs, right? Yeah, yeah. We love Easter eggs. And so it's like so funny. And thank you. Like, it's very rare that someone mentions that. And whenever they do, I'm always like, yes, because it's hilarious. And pretty cool that you've watched them all because yeah. you can't really see. Oh, you know, yeah. you, you have the whole rainbow there. That's so cool. Well, I've been on the other side of the table when the interviewer hasn't done any background research and it's <laughs> a nightmare. So I try not to be that guy. It's amazing that you watched the shoot too. Um, that was a real lesson for us that that was, we always refer to that. Like Toby and I talk about the shoot a lot with Zelda too. It's like, that was a hard time for us. That was an example of when we, we ate too much. We, we tried too hard to do something that was outside of our scope and learned a wildly valuable lesson that is the reason that we have to say, is it fun? Like if right, it's not right. fun, we don't want to do it because Toby and I, we just let that get away from us. And though the people we worked with were wonderful and fun, the process of that one wasn't fun. And we learned a good lesson there. 
it definitely has, it feels different than the other films. There's definitely a a different feel to it. Was it just a case of, um, by the time you realized it was too much, you were already in it? We weren't experienced enough to do that big of a film. We didn't know enough. And the production was too huge. And Toby and I, we tried to do everything, which, you know, inexperience, we didn't know that we had dove not in a pool, but in an ocean filled with turbulent sea. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And also, I think the film suffers a bit from the kids not being in it. I think it has a kind of meanness yeah. that our other films don't have. And that meanness is different from darkness. We right. love the darkness in our films. There's something about the shoot, I feel that it's just a little like mean. And I think it's because the kids aren't in it and it's missing their wonderfulness. Yeah. And we couldn't. You know, I don't think we were mean at that time. Like, I don't think we set out to be mean or anything like that. But I don't think we were clever enough to pull off what we wanted to pull off. Right. Out of curiosity, how did you get John DiMaggio? He's married to um, one of my best friends, Kate Miller. Oh, oh okay, okay. Well, she, that, that was in, she was in Halfway to Zen. She's the woman who works at the nursing home. And John was wonderful. They're both wonderful actors. Yeah. He was super sweet and, and really good. Like, he was exceptional. It was so cool. Yeah, I mean, the acting in, in the shoot was all on point. And really, the, the humanity was even still there. I mean, I come from a very blue-collar background, small town. Uh, I've, I've known, I, I can't remember the, the name of the leads, but I, I've known both your characters. I've seen right. that relationship play out a number of times. Um, <laughs> you know, I even know some, I've known people who borrowed money from the wrong people and had it go not so great for them. Uh-oh. So, yeah. so we, I mean, in a way, those characters are definitely based on real people. It's, it's just, we just didn't pull it off because we just weren't clever enough, but that's okay. Like that is okay. It was a great learning experience. I, I still, it was worth every second we put into it because of the knowledge we gained. You have to learn. You have to give yourself space to learn. And, and even, I don't really like the word fail. But you have to allow yourself not to necessarily succeed in the way people think you need to succeed. Because how are you going to grow and and stretch as an actor? I mean, as a, as a filmmaker, if if you don't if you don't try new shit. Absolutely, for your reach to exceed your grasp is no bad thing. Right. I think it's something to be admired. Before I let you go, where can everyone find you online? Where can everyone find? I mean, they've heard Shutter, but where can everyone find Hellbender and your other films? Yeah. Hellbender's on Shutter. The DPU Dig is on Shutter as well. The DPU Dig is on all the other, you know, outlets as well, like Amazon and, uh, you know, most of the places you can see films. In a couple of months, Hellbender will be there too. Our website is wonderwheelproductions.com. And you, you can check out the trailers and information for all of our films there. We have um, music on Spotify and YouTube and iTunes. And that's our band, Hellbender, where all the E's are sixes. Because, you know, hell, Satan and stuff. Sure. So, <laughs> so that stuff's out there. And um, on Instagram, um, we're adams.family.films. We love talking to people. So if anybody out there wants to talk to us, we're there. Fantastic. My guests tonight have been John Adams and Toby Poser. They are one half of Wonder Wheel Productions. Thank you so, so much for being here, you guys. Thanks for having us. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. And that's the ballgame. Don't forget to check out Hellbender, folks. If you like horror movies, even really if you like family drama, I mean, it's, it's a bit bloody relative to most family dramas, but there's a lot there to chew on, and I recommend it highly.
I also recommend checking out their other films. If you're in the US, they're easier to get at. You can rent them on Amazon. If you're in Canada, like I am, it's a little bit harder. I had to get crafty with VPNs and the use of a credit card that's only based in the US, but it is possible to see them, it's possible to rent them, and I encourage you to. Of course, as I've said before on this show, I do not encourage piracy. There are ways to pay for the films you love legally, and especially in the case of smaller production companies like Wonder Wheel, that is a direct message to the creators that you like what they do and you want to see more. So again, if you can, check out the rest of the catalog from Wonder Wheel, you will not be disappointed. If you want to hear more from me, you can find me over at the Ghost Story Guys podcast. That's ghoststoryguys.com or everywhere fine podcasts live. And of course, that is True Life Stories of the Strange and Unusual, co-hosted with my good friend, the very talented Paul Bestel, who also hosts the show Mysteries and Monsters. Also, the second episode of Weird Together, the YouTube live stream I co-host with Joseph Camo from In Search of Ghosts, has just gone up. This time around, we're talking about the brand new horror film, The Scary of 61st. I'll put a link to that in the show notes, and you'll also find it on the Ghost Story Guys YouTube channel. Thanks again to John Adams and Toby Poser for taking the time to talk with me. Thanks too to Peter Kursov of Pizanta Music for my fabulous theme song. You can find more from him at nightharvestrecordings.com or by searching for Pizanta Music wherever you get your tunes. And finally, thank you for listening. Without you folks, there wouldn't be much point. All right. Until next time, I hope the night takes you to the same strange and wonderful places it takes me. And remember, if you're not sure what comes next, put a call out into the dark. You never know who's going to pick up. I'll see you next time. <laughs>